On this episode of the Popcorn Diet, we're taking a look at the Oscar races, touching on Godzilla versus Kong, and discussing the midway point of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Get your popcorn ready. Sam. Shouldn't have given up the shield. Good to see you too, Pop. Not bigger things to worry about. I'm coming with you. No, you're not. Let me hear you. If we do this, we're going to do it our own way. Let me hear you. Why didn't you use the metal arm? Right-handed. Original series now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Welcome all you good movie buddies to the Popcorn Diet, a podcast for those who live on a steady diet of movie, theater, popcorn, and other delicious movie snacks. As always, my name is Rick Williamson, your very best good movie buddy. And joining us as usual is our other good movie buddy, the Canadian machine, Mr. David Melhorn. David, we're kind of doing a grab bag episode today. How you doing? I'm doing great. Good. I watched uh, Kong. Yes. The Godzilla. Yes. Last night, Kong v Godzilla, Godzilla v Kong, Dawn of Justice. Yeah, that's too many. That's too much. Extended edition. <laughs> too much, <What>? and <laughs> I've been enjoying uh, Captain America, or uh, I mean Falcon and Winter Soldier. Yeah, I mean it's it's been a good time. You want you want to be careful about saying you've been, you've enjoyed Captain America lately because the new Captain America kind of kind of a dick. Kind of questionable, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. So before we get into the the <laughs> before we get into the low brow of Godzilla versus Kong, and what I think to be the the mid brow of Falcon and the Winter Soldier, I want to talk really quickly. Just do a really quick update on the high brow, which is Oscar season next week. I have scheduled for us planned to talk about our hindsight awards, which we always do. I mean, as long as we've been doing this podcast, it'll be our fourth annual hindsight awards, looking at the films of 2000 that were celebrated in 2001 at the 73rd annual Oscars and making our own decisions. Um, but we are in the midst of the 93rd annual Oscar season, and the Screen Actors Guild gave out its awards last night. Or not last night, uh, Sunday, I think. It was Sunday. And like a pre-recorded, pre, it was like an hour long. The whole thing was an hour long, which, yep. you know, that's fine. So the winners were supporting actor Daniel Kaluuya for Judas and the Black Messiah. Supporting actress Yan Yu Jung for Minari. Bit of a surprise, but also kind of not really. Actor went to Chadwick Boseman for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And actress went to Viola Davis for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. You sent me a, uh, you sent me a, <laughs> an Undertaker rising from the grave. Ma, Ma Rainey's back. She's not dead yet. Um, and then, of course, even though Ma Rainey's was nominated for Best Ensemble, Trial of the Chicago 7 is what won Best Ensemble. So Ma Rainey's was nominated, didn't win Best Ensemble, even though it won two out of the four categories. No Nomadland was nominated. It wasn't nominated because that movie is literally two actors and a bunch of real people. So it's, there's no ensemble award to be given for their quote-unquote best picture, if you will. 
And so my question to you is, do you think that this changes any races right now? Do you think that we can officially lock in Kaluuya and Bozeman as our actors? And what the hell are we going to do about actresses? That's my first question to you. What do you think? I think I think we're pretty locked in with with actors. And Bozeman has won everything. I, I'm not sure he hasn't won one yet. I, and I think on the the actress side, I think just Viola Davis might move into that fifth spot. That's kind of been up for grabs. We've kind of been waffling between who's in that fifth spot. Um, but I think that this may kind of cement her in that spot. There. Well, well, don't forget, we, I mean, the nominations are locked in. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah, sorry. So it's just, it's less about like, the, the actress races are wide open. Yeah, I think, I mean, I still think this gives her the momentum. I mean, you, we always talk about how the guilds indicate a lot. Right. Typically for the Oscars, because it's similar people voting that vote for the Oscars. So I think, you know, this has got to at least put her in the hunt. And the thing is, though, with all awards, like with Screen Actor Guild, like you don't know whether she won by one vote or by, you know, 100 votes. Right. So it very well could be that, you know, whoever that favorite is. And I'm trying to remember who kind of is our favorite going in this. It felt like. It, well, before the nominations, we had the four locked in. We had Carrie Mulligan, Francis McDormand, Vanessa Kirby, Viola Davis. They were locks. They were getting in for sure. And yeah. then who was going to be the fifth? And it wound up going to Andre Day for the United States versus Billie yeah. Holiday. Can't discount her. Can't discount any of these people right now. It used to, the, the, the popular theory was that the Carrie Mulligan train was going to take it all the way through. But. Promising Young Woman hasn't exactly gotten that boost that I thought it was going to when it went to regular rental price. So, is that Viola Davis's music? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, if if you force me to pick right now, I would I would follow the Guild just because that same has always been a fairly safe way to go. Not sure. that it's always a direct indicator, but. Because it's been such an open and kind of back and forth race, mm-hmm. and because I think the performance is just that good too, I think you could easily see it go there. But like you said, who who knows? I mean, it's it's definitely open. It's not one of those races that I feel like going in. Yep, you would severely favorite one like we've had, and it feels like in previous years we've kind of had a known winner for actress for a while. And or at least down to like two. And I think this one we're probably down to more like three or four. Yeah, it it and it does. I mean, with the exception of giving it to Glenn Close for the wife instead of Olivia Coleman, which was what the Oscars did, that best actress performance lines up with the Oscars very, Mm. very regularly. So it's it's safe to say that Viola's picked up a big amount of momentum there. Yeah. Uh, supporting actress is a weird one because it, it, it's just as wide open. I mean, you have Maria Bakalova for Borat. You have Glenn Close for Hillbilly Elegy. You have Olivia Coleman for The Father. You have Amanda Seyfried for Mank. And then you have Yang Yujun for Minari. And it's like, that boy, there's not a ton of praise for 
any one particular performance out of those out of those five. And so Yang Yujun winning for Minari is super interesting. Uh, I don't have the stats in front of me of what the supporting actress field, like if we just go back to, you know, a few years ago, the supporting actress field for the SAG Awards went to Anne Hathaway for Les Mis, that tracked, went to Lupita, that tracked, went to Patricia Arquette, which didn't track, I think. Who wound up getting it that year? I don't think any of them got or, oh, oh, wait, it did. I just tried to block out Patricia Arquette from from my mind because Boyhood was a waste of three hours. Uh, Alicia Vikander got it. Viola Davis got it for Fences. So, like, it's Allison Janney for Itania, which is what happened. It's reasonable to assume, like, if we track if we track these things, it's reasonable to assume it might happen. Again, the weird outlier year was the tw- was was 2019 when Glenn Close won for The Wife, Emily Blunt won for A Quiet Place, um, rather than, uh, I honestly don't even remember who won the Oscar that year without looking in front of me. Laura Dern got it last year. So who knows, man? Like, who knows? It could be Yang Yoon- Yujun. I think it's trending towards, if, again, if you made me pick, I would go with her. Um, I think, I think this one's a three-person race. I think you have the potential for Glenn Close, and I think you have actually Maria for Borat. Is it's possible? I, I think those are the top three in my opinion. I think there's a little bit of distance potentially between. I think probably my distinct fifth place would be Amanda Seyfried, which is boggling to me because like. In my opinion, that's the one. That's like the one that should win. Sure. But I think you're probably onto something. Like there just isn't a lot of passion around that. But like when I go through like everybody online, who's putting kind of their the rankings, right. she's generally fourth or fifth. Crazy. In those. Crazy. And the one that's always in the the top two or three is is Yoon, and and that may be because of her just winning. But. Sure. Sure. And it, and frankly. There might not be a ton of opportunity for Minari to win in some of the other categories, and this might be a chance to award not only her performance. She's, you know, and I'm not saying this because like I'm a, I'm I'm very well known of of her work, but she's been in Korean films for ages. So mm-hmm. like it's kind of it's she's basically Korean Glenn Close, I suppose. Um, also, my apologies to Regina King who won for If Beale Street Could Talk and was not even nominated for the SAG. That was a weird year. Um, last question about the Oscars before we move on to the Big Lizard and the Big Monkey. Do you think that Trial of Chicago 7 winning for um, for Ensemble signals any type of potential upset? Because from everything that we've been seeing, Nomadland is the big, big frontrunner. Uh, with almost no question, um, Parasite won last year, which which uh, mirrored the Oscars. Black Panther won the year of, uh, I believe it was, uh, I believe it was Green Book. Yeah, um, this one sometimes plays a little bit. This I, the ensemble sometimes wavers. I still think it's a. I think there's four that could potentially win Best Picture. I definitely think Nomadland is the favorite. Yeah. But I think Minari's in play. I think Trial of Chicago 7's in play. And I think 
your dark horse's promising young woman. That's see the thing. Yeah, that's the thing. Is is maybe it's promising young woman. I still think like to me, Nomadland is the clear number one, like with a bullet. Uh, I think Trial of the Chicago Seven is probably number two, because a lot of people are comparing it to Green Book, and I'm sorry, it's ba- it's just a better movie than Green Book. Like, I get it. I get the comparisons. Like, I get. I I totally understand the comparisons to Green Book, but. It's Trial of Chicago Seven is a very very good movie, and then for my third man, I might actually put Minari there. I think Minari is getting a lot of really good momentum. Judas and Black Messiah might be my favorite out of all the nominees, but but yeah, I just watched Sound of Metal, which is just de- like devastating. But I want to did one other thing before before we wrap up with this conversation here. I do want to give a, a little bit of a shout out. On Twitter, I saw a really smart um, kind of similar assessment on Twitter by uh, Tanner LaFond, at Tanner LaFond. Shouts out to at Tanner LaFond. And he tried to break down why the Oscars just don't feel as exciting this year, not non-pandemic related. And it's the same thing that we always talk about. More accurately, it's the same thing that I always talk about, which is there is absolutely there is a razor thin level of diversity in the nominees this year. Like he points out how the father's a drama. Judas and the black Messiah is a biographical drama. Manx biographical drama. Minari's a drama. Nomadland's a drama. Sound of metal's a drama. Historical legal drama. Trial of Chicago seven. And then your black comedy thriller in promising young woman. And just in previous years, we got 1917, which is a war movie. We got, uh, Joker, which was a thriller. We got Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which was kind of a dramedy. You know, we got things like Black Klansman, which was a crime movie. We got Black Panther in years past. We got Dunkirk. We got Get Out, which was a horror movie. And so this year, it just is all dramas. And I get that it probably is pandemic related because there wasn't a lot of opportunity to release a a number of of different genres out as there normally is. But I at the very least wanted to give a shout out to that. Do you still buy into that theory, David, that, that we need more genre love in the in the best picture race? Or, or am I always just bringing beating up this dead horse? Uh, I, I do think we need more of it. But I think this year, I mean, what are you going to put in that should have been in there? I mean, yeah, what's what's soul, missing? Soul. Uh, I mean, again, this is where you get into personal bias, right? Because you have to measure your personal bias and balance it with the actual reality of something getting in. So, well, well, but to your point with soul, even like soul is obviously animated, and that's the biggest difference, right? But it's still, it's not like it's a, I don't know, it's it's still kind of in that same tone I feel like of a lot of these movies too even though it's an animated film and obviously a little bit different ending it's not a biopic but that but um actually a pretty good point but like I think I mean we could do a whole podcast just on this but like Palm Springs I think would be worthy of a of a of a look getting our personal proclivities about Tenant out of the way Tenant I thought was an incredible film you know so it's like I don't know I'm I'm always like that I am always just like Movies are so much more than dramas, and there are just so many 
little drama character stories that it's just like it's not interesting. It's just not as interesting. So I don't know. I don't know how I feel. I don't know how I feel about that. But I, I at the very least wanted to give a shout out to Tana Rofan for kind of actually doing the work and showing that. So the Oscars, Oscars are in I think three weeks, and uh, and obviously we'll be talking more about that as we go along. But up next, let's talk about Big Lizard versus Big Monkey, Godzilla versus Kong. Seemingly, the movie to herald in the return of movie theaters is are my fears have my fears of the last year been all for naught are people just so desperate to get into a movie theater like was was Godzilla versus Kong the perfect kind of universally translated movie to get people into the movie theaters um I gotta tell you man I know that we got went to the movie theater a few times over the pandemic I I myself Hit up the movie theater five times, three for Tenet, <laughs> one for Wonder Woman 1984, and one for On the Rocks, inexplicably. Um, loved every second of it, and I'm we were in a privileged position that Arizona never fully shut down its movie theaters uh, for too long. I think they were shut down for a little bit, and then they came back with enhanced safety standards. And like I said, like I, I danced with the devil five times in a public place, and I came out okay because... All those safety standards were pretty well followed. But did you watch this in a movie theater or did you catch it on HBO Max? Uh, I watched it on HBO Max. I had intended to go see it in the theaters. Uh, just but didn't work out no, schedule-wise. I mean, again, like lest we forget, I am a single man with very little on his plate. You are a father of three, a married father of three, a coach, uh, a, a titan of industry. So like... Well, and we, we, we had a podcast to do, so I figured it'd be better <laughs> that I watched it before the podcast versus just, you know, reading on it and podcasting on well, it. Well, you so. let me know when you want to go see it on a big screen, because again, not to be sacrilegious, not to be blasphemous here, it's a borderline religious experience, just watching a big, beautiful, loud movie on the biggest screen in the loudest theater possible. Just, I cannot say enough every time i get every time i watch wandavision or falcon and the winter soldier and i'm like oh maybe it's not that bad watching stuff from home watching Zack snyder's justice league maybe it's not that bad that i can pause it to go to the bathroom dude go back into the theater and just it's you just are like this everything else is bullshit like this <laughs> is the best so before we get into talking about the movie i think it's very important we talk about an important subject which is were you t team Godzilla or were you team Kong? And if and why? I think I'm team Kong. Okay. Mostly because I've always been a big fan of gorillas. Yep. First and Love foremost. Em. Love them. Was my favorite animal growing up. Primates. Still my, still my favorite animal to go watch at the zoo. Shouts out to primates. Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, I think his character... I felt for a little bit like you were rooting for a little bit more. He's a real Rocky in this movie. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, he doesn't have any special abilities outside of being a ginormous gorilla. Right. He has you thumbs. know, he doesn't shoot fire or no. blue, whatever <laughs> Godzilla breath, shoots. Atomic breath. Yeah. And you know, he, he's, you got the emotional aspect and I feel like, you know, for him, it's like he can't help that he's a giant ape and right. he just wants to hang out and Leave me relax. Alone. Yeah. And yet people want to poke and prod at him. 
Put them in Whereas a, put them in a, in a glass. Godzilla jar. always just comes off as an angry lizard that just wants to wreck things. It's true. I mean, he is in some in many times he's a protector. Like there are his most. I would argue his most well-regarded movies are the ones where he is a force of nature. Godzilla is essentially an allegory for his in his inception was an allegory for you know uh, the atomic age and the the risk of of nuclear destruction and in more modern incantations like this more, more last one it tied into the the nuclear power plant breach in Japan and tied more into that type of thing but like he's like yeah he wrecks stuff well, like that's his thing when, and, when and I would argue Godzilla too destroy the city well and I would argue too while yes he's been in that protector role it hasn't i don't know that he was really trying to protect humankind as much as protect his turf and earth is his turf sure and so he was usually fighting off people who were encringing on his turf i think what's important is that the the both both main main characters i guess we're going to call them I respect their energy. Godzilla basically spends the entire movie telling humans to quit screwing around. Like, quit messing around. I'm tired of... I'm going to turn... He's got big... I'm going to turn the car around energy. Um, And Kong is just like, leave me alone. I want to chill on my island. I want to wake up. I want to take a shower in a a waterfall. And I want to live my life. And I respect that energy as well. And, I mean, look at humans just getting in the way. Not only True. can we not leave these two alone, but we got to pin them against each other for nonsense. Um, I was Team Kong. I'm always Team Kong. I get, I get the Godzilla thing. I mean, I'm a dinosaurs and giant monsters are like my favorite thing in the world. But I'm sorry, like we're just evolutionary speaking. Like I recognize more of a humanity in Kong than I ever will in a Godzilla. And I really tried to think about it. The Ringer had a great breakdown of two scientists actually debating, like, the physiology and how it would work. I tried to think of it as, like, could a human fight a Komodo dragon, right? Like a big Komodo, like a human-sized Komodo dragon or or an alligator. And, like, hand-to-hand, it's going to be really tough. It's not impossible, but it's going to be really tough if you have to fight a full-grown alligator. But... Number one, Kong has opposable thumbs. This is very important. Number two, Kong is smarter in that he can dodge, he can bob, he can weave, he can hide for a little bit. And number three, as we've seen in the movie, he's he's a uh, uh, he's an ape. He can use tools, and that is the great equalizer between man and beast: is our ability to fashion complex technology or simple technology. Now. The movie was very clear, and I appreciated this, that Godzilla is, in fact, the victor, and Kong was essentially TKO. But I do appreciate that Kong's great equalizer was the axe, was basically like humans' great equalizer against other animals, was we're going to fashion a weapon. Um, I don't know. I, I enjoyed it. I, I like that. But I was Team Kong for sure. Um, David, this movie is incredibly dumb. Would you, would you agree? Uh, yes. <laughs> How did you like it? I mean, without, we're not going to get into, I mean, we're not going to get deep into the plot because I really do want to take a deeper look into the stuff that Falcon and Winter Soldier is doing for the second kind of tail half of this podcast. But overall, like, how'd you like it? What's your assessment? 
Well, I mean, first and foremost, you could have told me that DC released this movie and I would have believed you because the amount of things we're trying to accomplish in this movie and and stories and history and yeah. all of that. I mean, you'd think this was a standalone movie and didn't have the benefit of how, how three, many movies? Three, three movies, other movies before because it seemed like we didn't really want to use anything from the previous movies. We just wanted to introduce utter nonsense <laughs> to this movie. They keep trying to, like... They, and they're, they, they, it's such a weird, the MonsterVerse is such a weird franchise because there are little things that are, are continuity-wise throughout the entire thing. Sure. But they make such big steps forward and disregard such big things that it's almost hilarious how, how much, like, they just leave things dead. They leave... Monarch is practically it kind of exists in this movie, but it's all about Apex now and all about a different organization, a different company. You spent four, three movies building up Monarch, and they're barely in it. You well, know? and then we got to learn about Hollow Earth, right? And which they teased in the last Godzilla movie, like they went down into the place where where uh, Ken Watanabe had to set off the nuke to re. Basically, they pulled the same thing on Godzilla that they do in Kong in this movie. Mm -hmm. um, but like, we didn't. There was no in inkling that there was a different universe in the planet. Exactly. <laughs> and that it had special energy sources. And, you know, then we had to go Pacific Rim territory and introduce the kaiji. L literal. I mean, this movie, basically, the Mechagodzilla is Pacific Rim. Like, Pretty it's not even. Except it's got this weird. Like it. It appears that its foundation is like the bones of a of Ghidorah from of Ghidorah the last movie. From the last movie, right? And somehow the bones can take over and come to life, right? In like, see, now I got all of that, and I was just like, F whatever, because it was because the idea is that Ghidorah is the three headed monster. Oh, I'm his, aware, and his heads are too far away. To, to have the brain receptacles work normally so the brains interacted telepathically and somehow they used that telepathic energy in the skull of one of the heads that is at the base and the skull of the other is apparently in the skull of Mechagodzilla, I think, I think. And that's how they build the link between a dude in a visor running the Mechagodzilla like Pacific Rim. Mm. It's nonsense. Like it it's is. like okay. Yeah. Well, and I mean if we want to go into I took some quick notes while I watched it. First off, I have you, some, there's some you, favorites. You yes. have that first attack, you know, where Godzilla basically attacks the factory just, and surrounding area. Just says tell Florida like just tells Florida Pensacola. to just f off. And and yet CNN says only 8 people dead. You're telling me only people eight people died in that that first attack. I mean, it was a we we it, saw at a minimum two people yes. literally get barbecued. So only six others. Only six others, despite a literal literal building exploding. Yeah, things. You know, you saw that scene where he shot that whatever into that crowd. I can't remember what it was that went flying into the crowd. Oh, oh the yeah. jet, he, the, the jet. jet. He throws he the, jet. the jet. Yeah. So there's a third body that we found. I think there was at least one other jet that was killed. So you're telling me... Anyways. So... 
I enjoyed having uh, I, I want to thank Taika. I feel like Taika, Taika crawled through so all these Kiwi actors can can walk. He, Taika straight up gave us Julian Dennison. Like yep. he's in the hunt for the wilder people. So thank you. Like I feel like every year we're getting you know a movie or two where there's there's a Kiwi in there, and I, and I appreciate it. Kiwis are like dope, and yeah. they should be in more movies. Absolutely, and I agree. Um, Brian Tyree Henry is a podcaster. I really enjoyed Brian Tyree Henry a cashing a check, and b as a conspiracy podcaster whose first question to a legitimate official is, "Could you come on my podcast?" Yes, I appreciated that. I appreciated that. <laughs> that was the most realistic thing in the entire movie. Absolutely, uh, the whole Kong and Hollow Earth had a, had a little bit of like. Mordor vibes, uh, walk into the mountain there. A little bit. Really well. I mean, it looked great. Like, it looks like a, it looks expensive. And I, it was really beautiful through all the bullshit. Yeah. I also, I kind of got a Keanu point break vibes from Godzilla leaning in to do the finishing kill on, on Kong and then not being able to do it and just. Screaming, just screaming at his face. Just yeah, basically it, like shooting the gun, up shooting in the, the air. gun up in the air. Kind of gave me Keanu vibes of like, I can't do it. I can't, can't kill Kong. It's uh, and you because you had to get the money shot. You had Absolutely. to get them just like face to face roaring at each other. Yeah, exactly. So again, I I like it. And then my my biggest question that I had is, why do people continue to live and stay near these titans? Like. We've got this brawl going in the city, right? And it feels like everybody's just like getting their popcorn and sitting and watching because at the end of it, there's just massive crowds, just a ton of people. Despite there's the fact that I feel like about, I feel like they must have been sprouting up new sky, skyscrapers throughout that battle because huh? there seems to be no shortage of ones for them to grab or crash into right? throughout the battle. How many Kong-sized skyscrapers are there? I don't know, but In the, next th- the next time I watch it, I'm going to do a count of skyscrapers destroyed in that battle. It's so much. Also, like, and again, I understand we're talking about Godzilla versus King Kong here, right? Yeah. But the f- there are just a couple times where the movie just... I, and I also, I get, like... This movie theorizes that the the Earth is hollow. Like, okay, I get all that. Yeah, cool, yeah. fine. I I can't get over the fact that there is no way that a building would support the body weight of King Kong. Like, mm-hmm. that's just not how it works. When uh, he's just chilling against it, you can't just. I mean, he straight up jumps off of some of them, and yep, that would be yep. like akin to us jumping off of Lego skyscrapers. Sure, like the odds of it, like the odds of those things. Because there's a couple times where he's even grabbing and you know swinging around on a couple of them. Yeah, yeah. No way those would hold up. That bugged me a little. Well, bit. you could argue that maybe in this world where titans exist, they added more infrastructure to skyscrapers, knowing right. that one day a titan may jump off of them, and well, they need to be able to withstand that. I think that does answer your question about the crowds, because I believe there were at least a couple of shots of them going into like kaiju bunkers. Uh huh. Um, so they had the infrastructure to build those, mm-hmm. I guess. I had two big ones. I had two. Again, I loved this movie. I had a great time with it. I, I, it gave you everything that you wanted. And yet it's, I still recognize that it's absolutely moronic and, yes. and dumb as hell. Um, for example, the ape 
the the literal the literal expert who is on the cover of a magazine with the with the headline Kong Whisperer is shocked to learn that a gorilla can use sign language, which is something that <laughs> that that geologist or not geologists, but but gorilla experts have mm-hmm. been using to communicate with gorillas for fifty years. Sure. So it's like that. Well, Rebecca Hall, maybe you should have thought about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Number one. But my favorite part about this movie, and it is this is like what puts it into the dumb movie hall of fame, is that our main guy, Skarsgård, comes in. We introduce to him into the movie. He is a reject professor in a Philadelphia university, in the basement of this university, mm-hmm. can't sell his book. And then at the end of the movie, he is able to fly an experimental space vehicle without any problem mm-hmm. and then know how to rewire that experimental space vehicle's um, engine mm-hmm. to act as a defibrillator for a dying Kong. Mm. Uh, how? Like, there's just no... That's some real, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger old-school 80s action movie leaps in logic and understanding of, like, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter, you know? Mechagodzilla, shouts out to Mechagodzilla, was defeated by pouring whiskey into a computer, which is just, that's not how these things work, you know? Um, But, like, again, when you got Kong slicing off Mechagodzilla limbs... And like Godzilla providing the assist with the heat ray, mm-hmm. I'm in. Yeah, <laughs> I'm in on it. So, what do you think? Let, let's wrap this up here. I I also was really like walking out. I was like, good for the MonsterVerse. It gave us four perfectly fine movies. Mm-hmm. Like none of them were absolute garbage. Like I would argue, as dumb as this movie is, like the the the, the visual effects alone, the action sequences alone, are staged well enough. Mm-hmm. To, to not call this movie trash. But we got four movies with tenuous connections and theoretically, like, this is it. This is done. And I was just like, good job, guys. You made a four-movie series and, and, and it, it ended. Good job, you know? Uh, how did you feel about the MonsterVerse uh, overall? I mean, it's in line with what I expect from the MonsterVerse. I mean, where would you... Would you rather go and watch P Diddy and uh, uh-huh. yeah, that Godzilla song. 2000? That song still rips. Or this movie? I that movie's not fit. That's not a good movie. Like that old Godzilla movie's not good. But I did watch it. I think I watched it last year during the pandemic. I still had fun with it. Yeah. So that's that's my point though. Is I don't think anybody goes into a Godzilla movie. Expecting greatness. I mean, or a lot of people do. Like, lest we forget. Okay, well, people the, need to. The first Godzilla that came out, the first modern Godzilla, the one in 2014 or whatever, like, that took Godzilla very seriously. And everybody was like, oh, God, they're going to take Godzilla seriously. And well, then. People haven't been paying attention if they're expecting greatness from Godzilla movies. Not, no, not since that movie, because the next two were just like lunatics, like yeah. l- lunacy. So, I mean, there's the. There's the difference between going like Dark Knight on it and right. going darker, going more serious tone and actually making like a great, well put together film. Right. And 
I enjoyed the more serious take, but like every Godzilla movie to some degree has been a serious take. It's a monster killing people. Like it's not a comedy. Like, I mean, there's no. comedic moments in it, but, but that's, like, but that's the thing is like, it's the camp of it, right? It's the, okay, this is, there's a difference between like, there is a, there is a marked difference between Godzilla is a force of nature destroying the city. Millions of people are dying. We need to do something about this ecological logical disaster like what hath man wrought amongst fellow man. There's a big difference between the original Gojira and, I mean, hell, even the, the Gareth Edwards. Is it Gareth Edwards? The, the one that came out with, with Walter White, with, mm-hmm. our, with our boy Brian Cranston. Mm-hmm. There is a big difference between those movies that take the subject matter seriously versus like, we're gonna make this into a video game. Not it doesn't have to be a comedy. Sure. Serious doesn't doesn't necessarily connotate humor, but I think it does in terms of like levity and just tone, you know? It's tone. This movie literally has Kong doing a Mel Gibson shoving his shoulder back into the socket against the building, Martin Riggs style. Mm-hmm. And that's just not the same tone as some of the other ones. I have no problem with this, but and 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 frankly, I don't think many other people did. This movie was a huge hit. It made a shitload of money at the box office. It's certified fresh. I mean, my my end take on it is it's what I expect in a Godzilla movie. There you go. Full of full of plot holes. <laughs> great to look at. Great action. You know, I, I enjoy the absurdity of it. I go into it not all that unlike me going into Anaconda Blood Orchard. That's Expe- and for this movie, that's fair. Like yeah. for this particular movie, that's fair. And I think you're like it's the difference between like you're 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 going into this movie knowing you're going to watch a giant ape and yes. a giant lizard fight yep. in a metropolitan area and you're gonna get what you paid for like as advertised if you think like there's going to be some some depth and right. <laughs> logic to this story no. you're you're mistaken you're mistaken you're there's no there is no real deeper meaning to any of it no um i let's let's do a quick before we talk about falcon and winter soldier let's give it a popcorn rating what's that noise popcorn so for those of you who've never listened to an episode before, we rank our movies a little bit differently. Instead of stars or thumbs up or what have you, we like to give it a level of popcorn. Burnt popcorn means a movie is trash, don't waste your time. Stale popcorn means it's not great. In a pinch, sure, but you're not going to have a good time with it. Microwave popcorn is, it's fine. Some people might really like it. Some people might hate it. It's microwave popcorn. It's your, your mileage may vary. Movie theater popcorn means you should probably go see this movie in a movie theater on a big screen. And then perfect popcorn is go see this movie as fast as possible on the biggest screen that you can. I'm going to give it movie theater popcorn, like especially in the context of if you can go see it in a movie theater, movie theaters need help right now. And this is the perfect movie to go see on the big screen. Is it? It's dumb as hell. Like it's not. It, it's it ain't Shakespeare, you know. It's nowhere close to that. But I loved the experience of seeing it on a movie theater. I cackled several times at the ridiculousness. So I gave a movie theater popcorn. What about you? 
This one's going to be microwave popcorn for me. That's fair. And I expect that. Again, I I don't agree. I don't disagree with your comment that it's worth seeing in theaters. Sure. Which I didn't see it, but I would go see it just because of the spectacle that it is. That being said, if not for that, it would probably be two two popcorns. Stale, stale popcorn. popcorn. I feel like if we had a larger episode to argue this, we could continue arguing it. But I get, I like, I get your point. Ultimately, you if 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 the gra- if the CGI and the the spectacle was not what it was, right? This would not be oh. anything more than still popcorn. No. is what I'm getting at. No, like that, there's nothing. Like, there's be nothing. Five. There's nothing to come for in the story. Is what I'm getting it, for. Yeah, You're it, coming it, for. Big ape versus big lizard. Yep. Beautiful looking yep. backdrop. And Absolutely. that's about it. Like, Despite the A-list people that we have in this movie, Kyle Chandler, he's in like love him. Three scenes. Does nothing for this movie. Nope. Plenty of other people. I could go through everybody on the list. They Stars don't do guard, much Rebecca for Rebecca Hall, uh, Millie Bobby Brown. I mean, you're right. Like, I, and but I think it's also like, duh. That's the point. Yeah, like, absolutely. If Rocky IV didn't have the f- didn't have the fights in it, Rocky IV would suck. Yes. <laughs> and, and and this is the Rocky IV of Godzilla and Kong movies. Exactly. Which is which is why I'm giving it microwave, <laughs> not giving it lower. But like I said, if you if you're not here for. Uh, <laughs> You're not here for big monkey fight big lizard. You're not going to enjoy this. You're film. not going to have a good time. No. I agree with you right there. We're going to talk about Falcon and the Winter Soldier in a little bit, but before we do, we are going to take just a quick break. What's up, good movie buddies? Before we continue, I want to remind everyone that you can get free episodes of the Popcorn Diet delivered to you just by hitting the subscribe button or following us wherever you're listening from. So take a second, hit the button, give us a rating, write us a review, share us with the other good movie buddies out there. We also want to remind you to check us out on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash the popcorn diet and consider becoming a patron of this little independent movie podcast filled with love. Not only is it going to help us improve the podcast, keep the podcast going, but it's also going to give you exclusive patron-only access to things like early episodes, franchise refills episodes, and more. So check that out by going to patreon.com slash thepopcorndiet. Of course, we don't want you to forget that you can also follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, at thepopcorndiet. And last but certainly not least, you can find all of our latest regular episodes, articles, and more on our website, popcorndietpodcast.com. Let's get back to it. All right, David, back into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I suppose, even though this isn't cinematic. Falcon and the Winter Soldier is at its midway point, depending on how... I haven't done the exact lineup of when the third episode comes out versus things like the Oscars or what have you, but we're going to do an episode here at the midway point, and then we'll do a debrief episode at the very end as well. But this is a different type of monster than WandaVision. Would you agree? Are you sticking with the monster theme of it's, just because <laughs> we just talked of, about Godzilla? I'm kind of stuck into it. It's a, different, it's a different type of show. Sure. Well, and I think, you know, it's different like... Captain America movies were to sure. Guardians movies or even Thor or some of those other films. Right. It's it's taking you know, we've talked about how there's different subgenres within the Marvel universe, of course. especially especially once you got out of phase 1. Mm-hmm. 
we started getting really into some were much more comedic in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, really, it was Winter car- Soldier it was like- is very much like almost like a Bond movie uh-huh. or a spy movie in uh-huh. a lot of ways. And so um, this, you know, even though it's called Falcon and Winter Soldier, it's very much of the Captain America vein. Yes. You know, we're not going with at least thus far, and I don't, I don't expect that we will deal with multiverse concepts in this. We're not going to deal with magic or Or things like that. Maybe aliens, but like... Potentially aliens. They at least bring them up. The closest we're getting there, we're dealing more with technology. Super soldiers. Super soldiers. Yeah. You know, those types of things. Man-made type of things. Exactly. Which is kind of what we thought was going to happen. Absolutely. And I mean, that's in line. I mean, both of the heroes in this are you know using technology and right. and and human abilities and super soldier abilities and exactly. things like that so you wouldn't expect that they would be taking on you know aliens or things like that in this type of film right exactly and that's really i mean whereas WandaVision was this deep character study about the the character of Wanda Maximoff and was this tale of grief and things like that this is very much plot 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 there is stuff happening all over the world we got to we got to solve it we got to get on the case but we're still getting glimpses into these characters we're still getting glimpses of who Sam is as a person the struggles that he goes through the the doubts that he goes through likewise with with Bucky we even though they aren't quote unquote character studies per se we are still getting those deep character moments that flesh out who these people are and make them so much more than the sidekicks that they've been previously yeah and and that's where i would argue that that would be the common thread between this and wandavision is just like wanda and vision we didn't explore them a ton Mm -hmm. in the mcu movies that we've had Mm -hmm. we never really explored sam or Winter Soldier very much as well. Right. And so or so we're getting to dive into what makes them tick. Obviously, we know some of their stories, but we're seeing the fallout, whether it be like the therapy or, yeah. you know, the family stuff. Or just the Sam. arguments that they're having. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think to another degree, we're also dealing with seeing the continued fallout of the blip, you yes. know, and, and the, the yes. five-year gap. So that's something that I think we forget about to some degree because, you know, when we had Infinity War, it was all just focused on Thanos. And yes, they had to do the whole thing. And yes, part of uh, Endgame is focused on the blip and introducing it. But let's be honest, all of us were watching that movie thinking, let's see them go back at Thanos. Like, how are they going to undo this? How are they going to go back? Like, it wasn't like... Let's think about like what f- five years disappearing for half the population affected a si- society. Exactly. But to that same point, we can't move on with the cinematic universe just discarding that that happened. Exactly. Be- because that would have effects on the world that we're dealing with. And so it would have been a mistake to just be like, let's move on like it never happened. And so right. I appreciate that everything that we've been doing continues to come back to that concept of we had this blip and things matter it and it was a very impactful event exactly. for a lot of people and that's what makes you take like 
everything that you see in an episode, that's what helps you, it, 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 it motivates you to take it more seriously because you know, we've talked about this before, about how Marvel cares about things that have happened before. Like they pay attention to the stories that they tell. So introducing the, what is it, the GRC, the Global Reparations Council, and the idea that, like, even in just little conversations, talking about how the returned people were put into camps. Because five years, where are you going to put four billion people that showed up? You know, that's insane. And that's a really, really interesting point to make. And, and it doesn't necessarily need to have an entire show devoted to just that. Sure. But, but it fleshes out the world, you know? And, and that's just another good example of Marvel just paying attention to its work well and i think even when you have the conversation in the most recent episode with the scientist who was trying to (laughs) recreate the super serum he says i was doing the project i was working for the government i was doing good work i got blipped i turned (laughs) into dust then i came back and my job was no longer there in essence yeah they had nothing for me you know, that's a concept that was probably not unique across the whole world. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. if you had a job and you blipped and you were gone five years, guess what? Your company probably didn't keep your spot warm and you probably didn't have a job upon returning. And that was, you know, something that would have an effect on people, whether it be causing them to pursue criminal activity, whether it caused them to, you know, go down a different route. Like, right. Do whatever it takes. Exactly. Like... And I was talking about this to somebody else, I think, uh, the other day, where it is, like, creepy meta that the pandemic happened right after Endgame, right after Phase 3 finished. Sure. Far From Home was the last part of Phase 3, and they kind of played with the blip a little bit, but they didn't really get into it. And we literally went through a world-changing event ourselves, and we saw how much can change or how little can change. We saw the difficulties that can arise just from a single year of a, of a question of health. And now we're being reintroduced back into this Marvel world where they are also trying to acclimate to a huge world event. And there's some weird parallels. Like mm-hmm. It's very weird that it worked out that way. But it also makes things like the Flag Smashers more complex, mm-hmm. you know, because it started off with, okay, we're going to fight on these trucks. These are the bad guys. They're super soldiers, but we're getting a better idea of who they are. They're not just villains. You know, they're people who lived in a world that banded together in a time of great grief and then saw the worst of humanity rise when all those people came back. You know, we talked about the camps, for example. Yeah. That's super interesting to me. But there's, I mean, there's a lot of plot going on. Like, there are so many things happening. There are dealing with the new Captain America and sidekick. There are the Flag Smashers super soldiers. There's the character stuff that we talked about. Bucky basically reckoning with his past actions. And Sam dealing with probably, and again, you and I aren't the best people to talk about this, but probably a very familiar plight to a lot of black Americans, even though he's an Avenger. We get life after the blip, what that's like. We get freaking Zemo and all of his nonsense. Sharon Carter's in here with nonsense. We get this this mysterious power broker. And then literally, David, the last part of the most recent episode, I'm sitting there watching it by myself, screaming at the television like, Wakanda demands justice! Showing up because the winner or because uh, Zemo blew up their king. 
that's a lot happening. It is. is. Is it too much happening? Or do you think it does a pretty good job bouncing around? I think it's doing a pretty good job. I think my thing is, is just like with WandaVision, like because we're in this different style of storytelling, it's not like a movie where we need answers before that episode wraps up. Right. You know, we're we're used to a movie like hopefully answering most of your questions. Mm-hmm. Not that they can't leave you on a cliffhanger, but most movies will at least wrap up the main conflicts, the main questions, and the main things going on within that movie. Right. By the end of it. Right. Whereas with a TV show, you have to remember like it's more a a sum of the entire season. Like I think a season of a TV show is more comparable to a movie than, you know, one or two episodes of a season, even though they're the same length. Right. As a movie. Because a season is a story and a movie is a story. So even though we're talking about the difference between maybe six or eight hours versus two hours, the art of storytelling Mm -hmm still follows the same ebbs and flows. There are still rising conflicts. There are still new revelations discovered. And whether they happen across six episodes or two hours, like, you got to let the story finish before you can really accurately judge it. Yeah, and that's where I think it's still too early to see whether they took on too much, whether there's too much going on. Um, At this point, it does feel like a lot because you, whether it be... We're also conditioned to question okay is this marvel just doing a nod to a character Mm -hmm. or is marvel actually going to introduce this character so you know some of the examples might be something like smiling tiger who right who sam Sam poses as Mm -hmm. that's a character from the comment right does that mean at some point we're actually going to have the real smiling tiger and they're going to play a role or Or is he so inconsequential that they could just do an homage here. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, but then you get like Sharon Carter, who feels like she'll be part of this ongoing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like it could just be tying in this world a little bit. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think that's the case with her. Um, and, you know, you get all these other things. You get the power broker. You get. And what that's about, right? Wakanda. Like, you get. Um, I, I love going off of what you were saying. Like, I love that. So this is I'm going to do a weird aside here. One of my least favorite things that happened in the latter X-Men movies was that they would just like Magneto would suddenly have just some bullshit mutant in his crew. And it's oh, this guy grows spikes from his arms. Who's that? Who's that asshole? You know, why don't we have a, a name guy? Why don't we have somebody who's important, right? And what I love about this is that every single person they introduce is from the comics and has a history. So like you were saying, Sharon Carter, Smiling Tiger, great examples. But even Isaiah Bradley, who they went and, and visited, Isaiah Bradley was black Captain America, who stole the Captain America outfit, went behind enemy lines, saved a bunch of soldiers, came back, was court-martialed, and thrown in prison for stealing that costume. And they are somehow managed in one scene to convey a ton of that history. That's incredible storytelling. Not only that, but his his great grandson, I think, his great grand or just his regular grandson, the one who answers the door mm-hmm. is Eli Bradley or Elijah Bradley, who is Patriot, part of the Young Avengers. Yep. Also part of the Young Avengers, Wiccan and Speed. 
who were WandaVision's kids. Yep. Again, we're seeing these possibilities happen because they pay respect. I mean, even uh, Torres, we talked about, I think, in the first episode where we talked about Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Torres is a second Falcon. Like, in the comic books, Torres becomes Falcon when Falcon becomes Captain America. That could happen. Um, Carly Morgenthau, the leader of the Flag Smashers, was Carl Morgenthau in the comic books who was just known as Flag Smasher. So they took this supervillain and they turned it into an organization. And, and this, it's just it's amazing at how they can make these slight changes. So, for example, Isaiah Bradley didn't fight in the Korean War in the comics. It was still World War II. In this movie, it's the Korean War. Or in this show, it's the Korean War. They can make these little adjustments and yet still pay respect to it. It's so much fun. Uh, how'd you like Zemo? We got I, we got to talk about Zemo. Well, I've enjoyed Zemo. You know, obviously, he was more of a. I don't want to say he was a pawn to some degree, but like, people don't really think of Zemo when they think of Civil War. They think of they think of the fight, the, the big fight, right? Both the one at the airport mm-hmm. as well as the one between Bucky. Uh, Cap and Iron Cap Man. Cap and Iron Man. He, he comes up in villain conversations because he is one of the more successful Marvel villains. Sure. But he's the least flashy. He's just a guy. Yeah. And so I think from that standpoint, in the comics, he's a whole, whole lot more influential. Uh-huh. Um, he's someone that, you know, obviously has a whole lot more to him than just that storyline. He's Baron Zemo royalty. Exactly. And so I'm enjoying kind of seeing some of the bravado, some of the barren aspects yes. of it. Um, I think the performance, um, and I'm blanking on the actor that's playing. Daniel Brule. Daniel Brule is doing a great job um, as him. Uh-huh. And it's fun to see kind of a more well-rounded Zemo versus right. what you saw in the movie. You know, there's a whole lot more to him. Yes. I think he's, you know, they're obviously doing a good job of, like, walking that tightrope of is he good is he bad like we know he's bad he cannot be trusted like we know he's bad but is he bad in the sense that he's evil or is he bad in the sense of like you just can't trust him like he's out for himself because like it's been established that his main goal was not what most villains are it wasn't to rule the world it wasn't to even make a bunch of money it was to basically dismantle the whole concept of super soldiers. Exactly. Superheroes destroyed my country and killed my family, and I don't think that they should be allowed to exist because they go around unchecked. And the beautiful thing is is that he hasn't changed that philosophy, right? One of my favorite wrestling um, stories or, or one of my favorite bits about wrestling is that in order to do really good character work, from switching between being a a face and a heel, a villain and a hero, is not changing the philosophy of the character. It is just changing the target at which the character is pointed. And that's what's so interesting about Zemo, is his philosophy is still what it was before. He is still like, I don't believe super soldiers should exist. I don't believe superheroes should be allowed to, to exist in this world. And fortunately, that means that our main goals line up with one another to where you need me, and I need you, and I'll take you along for this ride. And that's what makes it so interesting. But you, like, the second he gets a chance to do something shady, 
like you can't trust this guy. That's the whole point. And and he, he it's just fun like seeing him have fun and seeing him go full like full legit Baron Zemo. I'm going to wear the coat. I'm going to wear the ski mask. I'm going to be a rich like power dude like i'm into it it's just so fascinating and you gotta know that it's gonna come back and bite sam and, and bucky in the butt because they're in marjapur which is also a reference to the comics it's big x-men ties to the to the city of marjapur which is by singapore in the fake geography of everything but like those three were all raining hell in a club getting caught on cell phone videos and this goes back to us talking about how marvel doesn't do things on purpose. Like you got to imagine that's going to come back at some point in time. So I'm interested to see what's going to happen. So what do you think is going to happen? There's some, there is some big unanswered questions. I think like, like we don't know who the power broker is. I keep seeing people online saying that Sharon Carter is going to be the power broker. I think that's bullshit. I think that would just, that's a stupid pointless twist. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it depends on, what role the power broker still is going to play. Sure. Because there's nothing that's indicated, even though we've got this mystery behind the power broker, there's nothing to say necessarily that they're this big villain pulling the strings. Right. Like, by all means, like they could just be the equivalent of like a mob boss to right. some degree, which if that's the case, then, you know, Sharon Carter could fit that bill based off of what we've seen of her in the one episode we've had. Sure. Um, you know, obviously there's the aspect of the power broker threatening um, the Carly, flag smashers the flag and smashers. Yep. And, and so that wouldn't necessarily track as much with Sharon Carter, in my opinion. Right. And so Sharon Carter isn't somebody who texts people like, I'm going to kill you and your friends. Yeah. So that's where like, I'm lost a little bit on it. There's the whole aspect too. That doesn't necessarily rule out her being the the power broker that Zemo referred to them the power broker as a him. Right. Again, not a deal breaker could not easily be like a misdirection. But but she also gets into that car at the end. She seems to have a valet and it's like, whoa, Sharon. Well, I mean, it's pretty obvious based off of her digs and what she's doing. That, that she's a big she, deal there. She's a big deal. Right. She's doing fine for herself. Right. And she even says to some degree that she's doing fine for herself. Exactly. So why would you need to... And again, we don't need to go down this road of... I just think sometimes I just don't like really unintelligent people on the internet making bad twists up for nothing. Right. But like, there's, it just doesn't track. I just am going to say it right now. Sharon Carter is not the power broker. I mean, I think it's... I think the bigger storyline is going to be you know, kind of this continued concept of super serum. And I think digging mm -hmm. into this whole concept of the relief organization sure. that we saw the flag smashers steal from. Yeah. And, and we, apparently and, and, kill. And we got a, a pretty, you know, extended commercial advertising it too, which seemed to draw a lot of attention to that organization. Mm -hmm. I don't think that was done just to tie into them stealing the medical supplies. Like right. I think that's going to be some source of like corruption and okay. Yeah. And bigger, it, they're going to play a bigger role, I think in what we're talking about. And I think that's going to play a, to tie in what we were talking about earlier about some of the fallout of the blip and right. 
bad people taking advantage of it. You know, it's not unlike the Spider-Man first Spider-Man movie where, you know, for all intents and purposes, like New York was like put in shambles. Right. And, you know, a lot of people were screwed over because of it Mm -hmm. in, in that regard. And that caused people to go other routes, maybe not necessarily doing the right thing, but you know, at least initially for the right, right reasons. It made and the so, vulture. Exactly. You know? And so I think that's kind of going to be, I could see that tying in. I think as far as who the power broker is, I just think, you know, coming off of WandaVision, I know everybody wants it to be some big reveal and be some right. character we've been waiting. I think it's going to be like WandaVision where it's a character that, yes, is going to have ties to the comics, but it's not going to be like, oh, is that, you know, so-and-so's music type of thing. It's an answer to a question that ultimately I don't think matters as much. And I think we also have to refer back to the fact that this was originally supposed to come out after Spider-Man Far From Home. After Spider-Man Far From Home. And after Black Widow. Yes. And I don't really take too much worry about Black Widow only because they chose to still release it after... Uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier, and it's so far different on the timeline. I mean, I know it's only probably like 10 years or something like that, roughly, because sure. um, it happens right after Civil War, mm-hmm. Black Widow does. And so it's not like we're that far that you couldn't have characters that cross over between could, the could two. Could be a surviving character. Who's to say Florence Pugh doesn't show up as the power broker? Sure, absolutely. But I think it's going to be... I think we're going to, just like WandaVision... This is going to open doors to more questions and yeah. stories yeah. than answer questions. That's uh, that's sure. kind of how I feel. Like cuz I feel like that's what WandaVision did. Well, I think it While was, we got to know Wanda and Vision, right. it more set the table for things to come in the future and I think that's what this is going to do and as well. And it did in in fairness, it did set up its own it set up and answer its own questions. Like, there wasn't any questions necessarily that were set up in WandaVision that weren't answered. Some of them were left dangling, sure. Oh, are the kids still alive? What's the deal with her doing her thing? Like, very purposefully so. But that was a full, complete story that was told to a satisfying conclusion for a story that will continue on, right? And I think the same thing is going to happen here. What I think is going to happen, and this has been thrown into a little bit of turmoil because apparently the Flag Smashers blew up a building of people mm-hmm. at the end of the last one. So this kind of throws this entire theory into, into question, but I w- it certainly seemed like we were getting leaned into the idea that these Flag Smashers were not the terrorists that they were initially made out to be. They weren't stealing weapons. They're stealing supplies. Uh, for to help people, they're being shown in very sympathetic lights. Carly's mom passed away in sure. the most recent episode. Things like that, and so I think they're. It's actually the the actress who plays Carly actually played Enfys Nest in Solo, who the, her crew was the same thing. They weren't marauders. They were actually the beginning of the rebellion. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why I think this is going <laughs> in that way. Maybe I can't disassociate the two very much, but I I think that. Sam and Bucky are going to find out that the Smashers aren't really that evil, and that is going to put them in direct conflict with the American government, the New Cap, Battlestar. Because the New Cap is not somebody who listens to reason. You know, He's the guy who runs into a building and, do you know who I am? Like that kind of shit. Yeah. And so like that's what I think we're leaning towards. Like I think it's going to come down to them like being on the run or going up against the New Cap in some way. 
I don't know. It's going to be really interesting. Here's my last question. Okay. Before we end. Let's go. Who at the end of this series has the shield? I think it's Sam. I, th- I think this whole... S- I think that's why Sam... I think... I don't remember if we talked about this or not. So if I'm repeating myself, I apologize. But the country that we live in right now, and frankly, fans in general, would have sometimes would have a difficult time just accepting Sam as the new Captain America. There are a lot of people who wouldn't. There are a lot of people who would be like, this makes sense. But there are some people who would. Because what did he do to deserve it besides getting Steve's blessing? What did he do to earn it, right? And so I think Sam giving away the shield in episode one is a smart move. And and them giving it to this fake Captain America is a smart move because that builds the audience more into Sam's corner. And it allows Sam to do what he and Bucky were doing on the plane, which is really break down what the idea of that shield and that symbol is. Now, I really appreciated Bucky finally, like, because Bucky becomes Cap in the comic books as well. I really appreciated Bucky saying, like, if before you ever get a chance to destroy that shield, I'm going to take it from you and I'm going to keep it myself. I like that we got a, oh, Bucky could be Cap. Uh, little dangling thread there. But I think it's going to be Sam. Like, I think this is just the story about how the world is changing and having a black Captain America is going to mean a lot more. This movie deals, or this show deals entirely with too much race. It's showrunner Malcolm, Malcolm Spellman. Spell, oh my gosh, I'm blowing the guy's name. Um, is too much uh, into this type of stuff. Like, this is important stuff when it comes to the story that's being told. Malcolm Spellman, yes. I'm glad I didn't blow it there. And so all of that leads me to believe that it's going to be Sam at the end of the day. And he's going to get, if the comics are accurate, a dope Captain America looking Falcon uniform with wings and all that kind of cool shit. So that's my that's my prediction. What about you? I think that's that's probably probably the route that I would go as well. I feel like we're we're on almost a a path of proving to your point proving Sam's worthiness yes. and not just to the audience but to Sam the character like i think Sam to that point doesn't feel worthy of mm-hmm. of holding that shield and mm-hmm. he's you know referenced in essence to that as well and i think he as a character is struggling with the concept of you know he's got the family ties and what's going on at his home and not wanting to accept that, you know, they're moving on from this legacy that he's built up in his mind for that place. Then you've got, you know, dealing with the fact that we've dealt with with all the characters that to be a hero, it takes sacrifice. And usually the the sacrifice is loved ones and those closest to you. And right. so, you know, I think there's a struggle there even in that balance of do I stay home and help my family or do I commit to being in this role of Captain America? And so I think there's that whole struggle and that depth that we're, we're getting from Sam. And again, I think that's where this is all about, you know, I think Sam and Bucky are going to be central figures in whatever movies we get for the next five to six years. I'd hope so. Yeah. And 
so now we need to lay that foundation, mm-hmm. you know, just like we got when we got Captain America movies and Iron Man movies and the things that made us attached to Robert Downey Jr. as right. Iron Man and right. uh, Chris Evans as Captain America. Like, we have to do that again if we're going to move on from those characters. Otherwise, people are just going to be, you know, kind of pining for those old characters to right. be involved. You have to build the emotional attachment to the characters. And I think it's doing a really good job of it. And and I do think, like, it's Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but I do think this a big part of this is Sam's story. Like, you don't introduce Isaiah Bradley in the way that they did and the concept of the black Captain America being mistreated by his country 50 years ago without Sam winding up with the shield. You don't put that doubt in that main character's head of having this huge burden of how do I represent this country who rejects people like me, you know? Like, it's it's going to be big, and it's going to be interesting, and damn it if I, like, again, we're not necessarily the best two people to have conversations about that, being a couple of white dudes, but, like, I appreciate that it's going in those directions. I really do, and I'm really fascinated to see where the next three episodes go. But until then... That is going to put a pin in it. So before we go, I want to remind you all that you can get free episodes of The Popcorn Diet just by hitting subscribe, hitting that follow button wherever you listen to podcasts. Give us a rating, write us a review, share us with your other good movie buddies. Also, don't forget to check us out on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash thepopcorndiet and consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Not only is it going to help improve an, an independent movie podcast, but it'll also give you access to patron-only episodes and uh, early content, early access to episodes as well. Patreon.com slash The Popcorn Diet. Of course, we don't want you to forget that you can follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, at The Popcorn Diet. And last, but certainly not least, you can find all of our latest regular episodes, articles, and more on our website, PopcornDietPodcast.com. But... For the Canadian machine, Mr. David Melhorn, I am your very best good movie buddy, Rick Williamson, and we'll see you next time with the Hindsight Awards, the fourth annual Hindsight Awards on the Popcorn Diet. Adios.